It's a real privilege to be here. I uh, attended my first IDAA meeting in 1977. I was in treatment in Brighton, Michigan, and uh, the uh, doctor, Dr. Smith, who was the nephew of Dr. Bob, informed me that if I wanted to go home, I had to go to New York. I don't know how much geography y'all remember, but Detroit is north and east of South Bend, Indiana, where I live. And New York was nowhere that I could see on the way from one to the other. What ended up was I ended up at an IDA meeting and I met a bunch of physicians and it occurred to me that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the lowest thing that ever crawled out from underneath the rock. There were other people that had this disease and uh, a couple of years later I acquiesced and got sober. Um, the keynote of that meeting for me looking back was I had the rare opportunity to meet Lois. And uh, she was on stage and gracefully came down and we got to shake her hand and she told me how Al-Anon was born. And I thought some people in this room might be interested in the story. It appears that in those days, Bob and Bill would just drag us drunks home and have the ladies make coffee and then they'd clean up the mess and we apparently weren't real kind to their homes uh, with our behavior and being sick and all. One particular night, Bob was, or Bill was just yelling at her to get going, get going, and she was uh, leaning against the door jamb, putting on her shoe, as women sometimes will. And he yelled once too often. She lifted the shoe, it sailed across the room, hit him on top of the head, and at that instant, Elanon was born. <laughs> when looked at the task of 12 ways to mess up your recovery, Initially, he suggested to me that we rewrite the 12 steps. Um, one of the first things my sponsor beat into my head was the 12 steps are written in such a way they do not need to be edited, they do not need to be revised, they need to be followed. And I could hear him screaming from his grave, Terry, don't touch the 12 steps. So I immediately had a problem. You know, how do I do this? And being Irish Catholic and laden with guilt, you know, you don't change anything because I knew it would come back to get me eventually. So I thought about it a while. And what occurred to me, maybe what we really needed to talk about was what is recovery? What is it that we need to do to get there? And then once we get there, you know, as a group, we're never really satisfied with where we are. So what is it that we do that chips away at that peace of mind that we finally have found? And, and looking at that, I decided that the best way to do this was talk to folks that had been there. You know, in, in certain churches and organizations, there's a group of men that, well, like in Judeo-Christian religion, that walked the earth when Jesus walked the earth, or walked the earth and, and knew the people that knew him personally. And they're referred to as the fathers of the church. I decided there had to be a group of people that were the fathers of AA. And that group would have to have sobriety dates 30, 40, 50 years. And these are the people that I wanted to talk to. I found a couple of them alive. I found some of them through tapes and I found some of them through books. And I would ask them the questions that goes on in my mind. Now, to understand this talk, you have to understand how I think. And I know there's probably one or two people that will follow this conversation and I know that my wife won't. I always have to stop and explain it to her. She's an extremely brilliant person, but her mind thinks normal. <laughs> my mind says, on the way here, a friend of mine apologized to me that he couldn't be at that meeting. 
the conversation took a probably 15 seconds. In the next 30 seconds, I had created a scenario that said that I was no good, that he didn't like me, that something was more important than me. I had made a full-length movie, printed T-shirts, and halfway written a book. <laughs> if you understand that, then you're going to understand a little more where we're going with this thing. When I got sober, two issues were, were made very clear to me. One, I had nothing to say than anybody needed to hear. For two years, I was dragged to meetings and I was not allowed to speak. When the meeting came to an end, they would say, Terry, do you have anything to say? I would say yes. They would stand up, say the prayer, and go home. <laughs> it took me that long to realize that they knew something that I didn't. And that's the beginning of recovery, at least to me. So, that's my mind and that's how it works. If you can't read it, it says, it says up there, Jeremy, but to me it says, Terry, would it be so hard to share what's on your mind? <laughs> and unless you think like me, there's no way I can explain it. By the way, there are some handouts on the back table, and if there's not enough, I'll be glad to email you some of these slides. And there's a website of some information that I stole from somebody else that you may want to check before we're done. So what is recovery? The length of sobriety only means that an individual has been successful in staying away from the first drink for a period of time. That's all it means. When I tell you I have been sober X years, that means I have been successful in that period of time staying away from a drink. doesn't guarantee anything else about my behavior or my state of mind or where my mind's going to go. The average length of mortality for this illness in 1947 was 52 years. The average length for this illness in 2003 is 52 years. This is a killer illness. It does not yield to research. It does not yield. You get it, you drink, you might live that long. That's the average length. The best we've ever done in AA is 50%. And that's inside the rooms. So if you are one of those few people that have managed to maintain some kind of sobriety, you're an elite group that is currently beating the odds, and you're probably going to be able to live past 52. What do we do with this? We need a solution that has both depth and weight. We need something solid, not some frothy emotional appeal. That won't work. We've all tried that. Why do you do this to yourself? And our mind immediately says... I have no idea what you're talking about. Why aren't you doing this to yourself? Frothy emotional appeal means nothing. It gets us nowhere. What is it that will take a guy like me, a runaway train, get him hooked and anchored in a program that will make a difference in my life for a long, long time? What is it that's going to capture us, slow us down, get our attention, and what is this recovery stuff? These are the guys I talked to. If you didn't have 30 years, you listened because you were a newcomer as far as they were concerned. That's where the gold mine was. Now, we're going to do a brief review. Hang with me. You've probably seen some of these things before. I'm going to compare, not rewrite, I'm going to compare the 12 steps with something that a friend of ours, Michael Kaufman, wrote 
about the 12 things that health professionals are taught in school. Now, some of these may apply to you. They all apply to me. In AA, we learn first. We were powerless over alcohol. Our lives are unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, whether we called that power good orderly direction, God, group of drunks, whatever it was, we learned that there was a power that could restore us to sanity. And we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. You all familiar with that? Now, take that newly learned behavior that most of us have and compare it to what we were taught in professional school. A, we learned that we could handle anything and we had total control. Fair enough. You are now a professional dentist, doctor, vet. You're in control. You're the man. You wear a white coat. People should bow. We came to believe there is no greater calling. We are what we do. Our personality, our existence is defined by our profession. We are what we do. For example, if you need a table at a busy restaurant, who do you say is calling? This is Terry, I need a table. This is Dr. Alley. You have a table tonight and you get it. We are what we do. We use that. We made a firm decision to live our lives as consummate medical professionals, resisting the need for self-care and the influence of anything outside of our careers. Fit anybody in this room? Sort of fits me. I should tell you a story about last June. I may tell you that if we get that far. Step one to three are about recovery. They're, they're not about recovery. Excuse me. They're about building a platform for recovery. They build a foundation based on real issues. Real issues. I am not here because it is a good idea. But because I have a life that is absolutely beat into the ground, I am absolutely defeated, and I'm hanging on to a power greater than myself. That's where I am at step one, two, three. I'm not here because I don't have anything else to do on a Saturday afternoon. I am here because there is nothing else for me, unless I am here. That's where you have to be at that point, and that's directly opposite our professional training. This is about a need to fully concede that I am alcoholic at the cellular level. It's not an intellectual event at all. This means there is no doubt in my mind that I am an alcoholic. I am not a physician. I'm an alcoholic who happens to practice medicine. The cellular level, I am different than the rest of the population. When my wife drinks Kamchatka vodka or has a glass of wine, she says, ain't that nice? It might last all evening. When I drink Kamchatka vodka, and I don't know if I've ever had a, a glass of wine, but when I drink wine, my reality changes. It goes down, something goes boom, and I become normal. At a cellular level, I'm an alcoholic. This is the foundation. Step one to three are about surrender and a power. I give up and I need a power. All of this is about defining what recovery really is so we can talk about what we do to, to screw it up. The physical part is easy. If I don't take a drink, I don't get a physical craving. I drink, it starts the craving, 
I can't stop. That's me. It says, you don't understand, I'm not like you. And it says, that's ad terminally unique to the bitter end. Unless we can accept on that level that we're different, this is where we end up. Now, let's talk about what an obsession is. In the big book, if you read it selectively, it will lead you to believe that you kind of like get a lobotomy and the obsession goes away. You read it selectively, it'll tell you that. In reality, though, an obsession is just put on hold. If we do what it takes to put it there, it stays there. But it's extremely easy to take it back. An obsession is an overwhelming compulsion to drink. It is not craving. An overwhelming compulsion to drink. It's not stinking thinking. It's not craziness like that. It's not... Who would know, maybe I'm not really an alcoholic. It's not, maybe I reacted prematurely and wouldn't a drink be nice. An obsession is a killer thing that's going to happen to each and every person here, and you better be ready for it. An obsession is an absolute compulsion that you're going to drink. You can read about it in the book. You don't want to, but you know that you are. And that's to tell me to tell you a story. One of the gentlemen that I talked to had over 50 years of continuous sobriety. He had sat in meetings with Bill W. He had traveled many, many miles across the country carrying the message. Was a spiritual giant. That's his own term. i tell you what. He boarded a jet one day, just been to a meeting was in a great place. In his words, he was fat, dumb, and happy sitting on the airplane. The lady gets the cart like they always do, starts down the aisle. You know, what would you like? And he said, there was nothing different about this flight than any other. Nothing different about her saying, would you like a drink? He'd heard it a thousand times. But that day, those of you who are alcoholic will understand this, he heard it. There's a difference. He heard it that day. He reached in his pocket. He had, I think, I may get it wrong, seven, ten years of sobriety. Got out a dollar bill and stuck it in his front shirt pocket. Because that's what you do. He had a, an overwhelming obsession. He didn't want to drink. He'd never had it happen to him before. He said, as a spiritual giant, he watched his whole world crumble in seconds. What do you do in that situation? Call your sponsor. There weren't phones on airplanes in those days. Go to a meeting. You're 30,000 feet up in the air. You don't know the guy sitting next to you. Lean on the fellowship. Tells you in the book, think about your last drunk. He said it helped a little bit. But, he said, be prepared or become dead meat. I can understand that. An obsession hit him out of nowhere. It says in the book there will come a time when you have no defense. Bad memories won't be enough. So you're right up against the wall. What is it that you would do? 
What is it that you personally would do if this happened to you? Exactly. You pray. And what was his prayer? Oldest prayer known to man. God help me. It's all he had. It's all he needed. The obsession went away. The illness is powerful. Extremely powerful. But the program is more powerful. Sometimes you have to take the program and let it work. He told me this. He said, we came to believe. No timetable. We didn't come to believe in June. We didn't come to believe after five years. You come to believe there are no conditions on that belief and you start where you are. You know, sometimes we want people to start where we are. It's not what it's about. You start where you are. You come to believe on your own terms. Now, this is all just about the first three steps yet. We need a power that's going to help us that's real, that's dynamic, that's vital, that's alive. There's not a spiritual part of the program. There's a spirituality in the program. And there's a difference. And we'll get to that in a minute. Basically, what you need to do is you just need to get out of the way and let it work. That was his answer to me. He now has 50-some years of sobriety. He's not had another obsession. But his point was, it can happen to anybody, anytime. And if you're not prepared, you're not ready for this, it can get you. And this is not about, you know, craving. This is an obsession to drink. It's different. These are things that screw with your sobriety. All right, one to three. Some people think have done these steps and no more. If I had said to you, you want to stay sober, what do you have to do? And everybody's going to say, well, you got to do 12 steps. I suggest to you that I know folks that have only done these three steps. No more, nothing else, and that's okay. Now... In case you haven't noticed, there's no quality control officer in IDAA or in AA. Now, there are a few self-appointed people that think they're quality control officers. <laughs> but there is no such thing. Some people have died sober, done the first three steps, and never read the big book. So what is it that we're after? Point is this. You get as much as you want. So there's a difference between sobriety and not drinking. This is a good place for survival. If that's all you want, do no more. If you came here to survive, work those first three steps, put the bottle on the shelf, you can survive. If that's all you want, then you got it. You don't have to do anything else. But that's not sobriety. If you want more, then a lot more is required. And that's where we're going to go. These are my neighbors. <laughs> Do the first three steps, nothing else. Your life is dull to you, it's dull to them. You ain't drinking. Some folks are happy, the physician boards are happy, your spouse may be happy, but you're not. If that's all you want to do, survive, that's all you need to do. Now... Let's go on and talk about what else medical school or dental school of them taught us. In AA, we made a searching and moral searching moral inventory. We admitted to God, to ourselves, another human being, the nature of our wrongs. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 
humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. However, in school, we made a searching and thorough inventory of all medical knowledge. We had to know everything there was to know and outquote anybody else with articles and where they came from and show me your references, I'll show you mine. We recognize that our discomforts are the fault of people, places and things outside of us. That professional failings and weaknesses of character are inappropriate. It is not okay to be human. It is not okay to be sick. It's not okay to take care of yourself. We're entirely ready to deny our own negative feelings, doubts, and misgivings. I'm sure there are no professionals in this room that have ever uttered to a nurse, where did you get your medical degree, when she rightfully questioned their decision. Am I right? No one here has ever suggested or thought of that or said that to a subordinate or a wife or a mother. And you knew they were right. That's why you had to say, where did you get your degree? Because they caught you. We never let our, mistake, our mistakes, fear, or feelings of inadequacy show. Now, steps four to seven have to do with my relationship with myself. They have to do with who I am. One, two, three had to do with building a platform. These have to do with who I am. And it says to write an inventory. And one of the messages I got was, write an inventory. Don't think an inventory. Don't conjure an inventory. Don't believe you've done an inventory. Write an inventory. They, they kept telling me that. So I had to go home and write an inventory. You know, overwhelmed with guilt. Somebody tells you you got to go do it, right? It will be the most important day's work you've ever done. It will change when you write it. That's the significance. Rather than thinking it in your head and going over it with somebody, it changes when you write it. And believe me, it will be the most important day's work you've ever done in your life and will match nothing that you accomplish as a physician, a surgeon, a dentist, a vet, whatever professional is here. Six to seven, most people look at those and say, we did four and five, you know, kind of write those off. That's kind of a second invitation to uh, sandals in a robe, you know. I got to the sandals. I never got to the robe. I'll guarantee you that. It's about changes that we think are easy. It seems like a rehash of stuff, you know, it's going back over things. However, I would suggest to you that they are an extremely important, pivotal process. Very important. Why do we have loss in our program? Why do people quit? Where do we lose folks? Where do you lose people that you sponsor? Where do you lose things in your own depth of recovery? Where do things start falling apart? Where do we get all of this stuff? One gentleman told me that it's his experience that we lose most people between six and seven. Imagine that. Because in four or five, we get acquainted with alcoholism. But it's not just drinking. So recovery is not just not drinking. Defective character is not bad behavior. I'm not a naughty person. I have a distorted personality. Hard to believe, isn't it? 
a distorted makeup, a defect in my character that means I am propelled by forces that are destructive and will do me in. That's my character, my nature, means I am propelled by forces that will do me in. Left to my own devices, I got introduced to places that I don't remember being introduced to. I have seen the inside of treatment centers both as a professional and as an inmate. I have sat in front of medical boards and answered stupid questions by people that didn't understand the disease. I've awakened underneath my car in the driveway. I have awakened. That was a big one a couple of times just to waken up. They're defect in my character that means left to my own devices, they're going to do me in. Now, if I stop drinking and do one, two, and three, I'm still me. Unfortunately, I'm still the same guy. So here at six or seven, the question becomes, do you want to fix that or not? These defects you got. Do you want to get well or don't you want to get well? So it's more than a, than a robe and some sandals. Do you want to take a stand? Are you ready to do something different? This is the pivotal part. You want to learn to say no when yes is so easy. I've done one, two, and three. I haven't had a drink. Do I really need to go to the meetings? It would be a whole lot easier to stay home and play canasta with my wife. I need to go shopping. I need balance in my life. Let me suggest to you, the folks that sponsor people, one idea. Now, I don't have the answers. These are suggestions. I'm not an expert. I'm a guy struggling to survive with a disease that I didn't ask to have. How many of you sponsor folks differently than your sponsor sponsored you? Yeah. When he tells you, I want you to go to 175,000 meetings in two weeks. You did that. Because he told you to do that. And you had that relationship. It appears, again, this is not judgmental. It appears that when we don't sponsor folks the way we were sponsored, and we're telling them, you don't really have to go to all of those meetings, or why don't you get some more balance in your life, what are we doing? What was given to us worked. What we're given to them ain't the same, isn't as good as what we did. Are we not taking it easy on ourselves? Are we maybe not being truthful? Are we not possibly living a lie? I'm here today because a group of guys in South Bend, Indiana, decided that I needed to be sober. They decided that I had absolutely nothing to say in a meeting for two years. They decided that I needed to go to a lot of meetings. They taught me how to lay bricks, how to cut wood, all of these things that I felt I had no need to learn. They taught me how to live a sober life because they knew how. These guys, one was a bricklayer, one ate out of garbage cans in South to Plain Street in Chicago, taught me more about life and living than I had learned in my 25 years of formal education. Now, given that gift... Am I not cheating people that I sponsor if I only share part of it? That was an aside that one of the guys wanted me to make, and I promised him I would. 
I happen to believe it's true. But sometimes what we do is we make it easier on ourselves. You need balance in your life means I'm tired of dragging you to meetings. Okay. A lot of people get to this point here and they're not willing to take a chance. They're not willing to change. So what does it involve? Okay. You all know about the world-class fifth-stepper. You know about the guys that take a fifth step every three or four days about a different issue. You know? You know about the guy that that takes his... Here, this is different. Here, that's what I wanted. There's a gentleman that gave one of these... The guy tells me, seven-hour fifth step. Seven hours. He sat at his table. He's fascinated with this guy. But that's all he did. He talked about his fifth step. He stayed in the problem. He told war stories. And he romanced romanced the problem. Not one ounce of action after that. So there has to be some change. There has to be a pivotal process here. There has to be some power. What needs to happen? What good is a five-hour fifth step if when I'm done, it's over, and that's it? I've told you my story. Where's the healing? Where's the magic? Where's the recovery? There needs to be some form of action tied to that to make it work. AA needs to change from a place where I go to get what I need to find in my own mind to a place where I go to get what I need to survive. Try and explain that a little differently. If AA is just a pit stop in life to bunch up with the boys or the girls to get what I need to go back and fight again, it'll get old. We go to AA to get what we think we need in our definition. We go there because somebody's on our case and maybe we just don't want to drink. If that's all we go there for, it needs to change from that for action to happen. Otherwise, it'll get old. It's just a place to go to heal up. How many times did we do that before? How many times did we crawl home? Mother's house, dad's house, ex-wife's house, girlfriend's house, office, someplace to heal up, to get well, to go back and do it again. AA's not, that's not its purpose. It's not IDAA's purpose. There are only so many ways that you can do a drunk log, dissect the steps and the traditions. You know, there's only so many ways that we can do this. You know, it's, everybody comes here with baggage. Everybody comes here with a story. Everybody has a reason for being here. And this is almost going to sound blasphemous, but one of the guys told me, he said, and it don't matter. I don't care to hear it. It's all the same anyway. You know, that's not the issue. Bring the baggage. Let's see what the deal is. I don't care about hearing about it. Drunkalog's fine. You hear one, you hear them all. People bring their stuff there, but that's not what they come to get. That's not the important part. There needs to be some way to do something different. If it never becomes more than a place to go to get what I need, I will miss the boat entirely. It will get old. It'll get repetitious. It'll get boring. And I'll get gone. How many folks do we know that say, same old meeting, same old place, same people say the same things, nothing changes? There needs to be the action. But it's not about other people's action. 
It's about my own personal action. I need to be willing to look at those defects of character and do some change if I'm going to get some sobriety. Not just drinking now. I'm going to get some sobriety or serenity. Some power needs to happen to me. In this transition, the decision is simple. I have to become ready to have God remove these defects of character. I have to be ready for that action to change this body with its defects. I have to be ready to have that action happen. I have a distorted makeup. I need to be free of the forces that drive my life. That we talked about earlier. Defects of character are what caused me to do what I did. They are the action, the behavioral stuff. You need to be able to tie that, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, to the amends that you need to make because there's a direct correlation. Defects of character are the things that made me do what I did. They are things that I did. Defects of character are stealing 20 bucks out of somebody's purse to get a rock or have a drink. The thief part. The defect of character. The disease that drove me. Shortcomings are what I didn't do. There's a difference. Some people say, Bob and Bill use different words from defects of character and shortcomings because they didn't want to be repetitious. I think they're different things. I think there are defects of character and there are shortcomings. I think it's the difference between commission, the acts that I did, my defects of character, and omission, the things that I didn't do and should have done. The story is, a guy was talking about he never physically hurt his mother never abused her until he thought about she was an elderly woman she worked in a factory at night she had a lot of trouble with her feet he would come home heal up borrow her car for a short trip I will be back in a couple of hours and bring it back in three days while she walked back and forth to the factory to work there was no father he had left the home at four Okay, those are the defects of character that drove him to do what he did and led to a problem with with amends that we'll tie together in a minute now if we do this what happens what do we get restored to what we get restored to is life itself we get to restore to where everybody else starts we become part of life we become whole in a sense now in AA we made a list of all the persons we had harmed Became willing to make amends to them all. You all know this. Made direct amends whenever possible, except would do so and injure others. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were promptly wrong, we admitted it. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God for His knowledge of His will for us to carry it out. I want to point out it says sought through prayer and meditation, not sought through prayer and medication. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. We all know that. However, in school, we made a list of all people and institutions would upset us and harbored resentments toward them all. We've all been there. We all know that. How dare they not allow me to operate? How dare they challenge my diagnosis? Why are, they, why are these people doing this to me? Who are they to tell me how to operate? We refused to take action to resolve these tensions, but tried to get even whenever we could. As a group, we're an extremely passive-aggressive force in any hospital that we work in. 
We continue to act as though everything was fine, always maintain the correct appearance of a medical professional. Don't let the facade slip. Diligently refuse to accept any new ideas, seeking only to live life on our terms as we felt entitled to, and rapidly clung to our original attitude, rigidly clung to our original attitudes and practices, recommending them to other medical professionals, taught interns and physicians and residents to live as we do. If you're going to be a doctor, this is how you do things. If you're going to be a dentist, this is how you do things. This is how we live. Welcome to the club. Don't let anything stain your white coat. If it does, ignore it. So we're at steps 8 to 12. Now, at this point here, we've done the other thing. Here is where freedom actually occurs. Here's where the amends process takes place. This is where things start getting together. Now, let's talk about amends. You cannot be free until we right those wrongs and restore the relationship. That's about an amend. That's where the freedom comes from. Now, does an amend mean, hey, I'm sorry, yeah, that's okay? You need to do it in a way that connects the defect that drives it. You make an amend for something that you did, and you tie that to the defect of character that led to the action. It all has to come together if you're going to get out of it what you need to get out of it. Now, willingness is not always a given. By that, I was trying to make the point that sometimes we have difficulty making amends, and usually fear is part of it. The fear eats you up every time. Excuse me a minute. I'm bad to drink. That's better. Okay. We need to remember that what I'm doing is cleaning off my side of the street. This isn't about somebody else's stuff. My side of the street. Amends are not about negotiations. They're not about apologies. They are about making right wrongs. It's not about I'm sorry. It's about righting a wrong and restoring the relationship. In trying to straighten out relationships, it's very important that I become willing, and if I'm going to become willing, I first have to forgive them. Now, that's a little different. Usually when it's amends, you're asking, at least suggested, for them to forgive you. That's not correct. If you're not willing to make amends, if you go to make an amend and you have an expectation about what they should do, then you're not ready to make the amend. It's about cleaning my side of the street, cleansing my soul, making right my wrongs. Not about, gee, I'm sorry, yeah, that's okay. They pat you on the head. A lot of times people don't want to accept the amends. They just want to write them off and say, okay, keep doing what you're doing, it'll be all right. But if that happens, it's really not okay, and it's not what amends are all about. It's nice for them, but it deprives you of what the process is really all about. Another way that you can screw up your recovery is not getting all you can out of these amends. It is easy to say, I've done it. But it does nothing about the responsibility to do the things I need to do to get the things out of my system that I need to get out. I have to take full responsibility. Making the amends is my job. It's not about them, it's your job. Um, 
trying to give you an example here. I'm the one that has the program, they don't. Getting through their resistance is my responsibility. The person to whom I make the amends has no idea what I need to do. And you're going to be in situations that are awkward, embarrassing, difficult, because they don't understand what it is you need to do for yourself. The problem with relationships with women traced to a relationship with his mother. That makes absolutely no sense to you. That's to bring my mind back to a unifocal point so I can tell you a story and I can get out of that cloud of a million thoughts that goes on all the time. This particular gentleman related that he, he his father walked out when he was four. His mother would have been perfectly okay if he'd have stayed drunk in her home the rest of her life and remained her little boy. As disgusting as he was, he was convinced that it would be okay with her because she was like overly mothering, overly protective because of the absence of dad. And if he wanted to stay drunk in her house and let her take care of him, that probably would have been okay. Now, when he tried to change that relationship and make amends, it really created a problem. Because what he needed to do was grow up. And what she needed him not to do was grow up. So he had to take fight her resistance to his responsibility of making amends to the lady that had to walk to work because he was out getting drunk in her car for three days. And other things that happened. So it's not about is he okay. As a matter of fact, he relates the story... His mother and a neighbor, this was years after he'd been sober, his mother and a neighbor lady were in the kitchen and he was eavesdropping and she says, what is it that your son does that he stays so busy? And this guy's mother said, oh, he's in that AA thing. Oh, is he an alcoholic? Oh, no, 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 he's a good boy. (laughs) He had been in AA for years in recovery. That was her stuff. So what they had to learn to do was separate. He had to grow up, and when he started doing that, she looked him dead in the eye and said, Son, I would rather see you back in prison than the way you are today. Now, that probably hurt a little bit. But his explanation was she struck with the only weapon that she had. The only thing she knew, because he was growing up, and that wasn't okay with her, he was forced to grow up as he did the steps. So making amends aren't always easy. But it wasn't about her stuff. It was his side of the street that he had to do with. He had to take the responsibility of dealing with her resistance. Often the carrier def- character defect can be related to the need for, for amends to repair relationships. Freedom doesn't mean things go my way. It means I take my rightful place and my responsibility. In other words, what you gain is you resume your rightful place in society. That's what the freedom's about. The most tortured people are people who have done something in life and legally gotten away with it. He tells a story of driving blind drunk and killing two people. Has no recall of the situation. Difficult thing to do. Difficult thing to do. He went to trial and he served his time. And he worked through his amends. He prayed for two things. He prayed for the willingness to do it and an opportunity to make amends. And in his story, and I'll 
chariot at the end where you can go get some of this. He was able to do that. But there are people that we know that have done crimes or similar things in blackout and hired folks and legally gotten away with it. And this man's experience, they're the most tortured people that he ever meets in AA. Because there's some problem there with coming to terms with that. Coming to terms with the fact that my defect of character caused me to do such a thing and there's no way out of it because legally it didn't happen. And he said, you know, they search and search and search for some kind of peace. Human people, you know, human life is gone. People have died. But there's a problem with accepting that. And if we have time, we can tell you some of the other stories. But the bottom line is you need to pray for willingness and opportunity if you're going to do an amend. You're going to get to where you need to go. All right. We can't take our relief at the expense of another. Drunk drivers causing death doesn't mean we can go to the family and say, you have to forgive me and expect have the expectation that that happened. That's at someone else's expense. The product of this whole process is to be free of the past bondage. The outcome of the program is that I can be free in every sense of the word. Now we're getting to what sobriety is about. There will come a time in your life when you can walk down any street in the world and look anybody in the face and anybody in the eye and be okay. That's the reward. That's the freedom of working the program. That's more than just not drinking today. You can do these things. There will come a time in your life when you can assume your rightful place in society and you can look anybody dead in the eye. Those are the rewards and the freedom that we're talking about. Okay. Never put a period on your amen. Never say, I've done them all and they're done. At 18 years sobriety, I was where I was at, at one year of sobriety. I was making large payments on a house that I wasn't allowed to enter. Thoughts of self-destruction were not um, foreign to me. It appeared to me, through much denial on my part and work, that I needed to make an amend for a relationship that I had started 28 years ago based on a total lie. And in an effort to make that lie work, I had spent 10 years or so uh, in a semi-conscious state with IV drugs, alcohol, or anything that I could find. When I sobered up, rather than face that, I decided in my wisdom, thats what you, after you hear this, you'll understand why they didn't let me talk for two years, <clears throat> that if I could stay in this relationship two years for every one that I had done wrong, you know, pay back double, you know, I created 10 years of chaos in her life. Therefore, if I paid two back, it'd be okay. Made sense at the time. And until I could resolve this amend, I wasn't going to find the peace and the happiness to be able to walk down the street and do what I needed to do to be okay. But God doesn't let us remember things too quickly. If I had dealt with that in early sobriety, I probably wouldn't be here and you'd have a different speaker and maybe even having lunch and who knows, you know, things could change. But I can tell you my life wouldn't be the same. 
I had to face all that stuff at that time. So never tell yourself, I guess the point is, that your amends are done. If you get uncomfortable in life and you get uncomfortable in sobriety and experience some of the things that we're going to get to here in a second, look at this. At 18 years sober, I needed to make amends tied to a defective character in an event 28 years ago. My defective character was I wasn't able to be honest. I lied to get into the relationship. I lied to cover up things. I perpetuated the lie, and I did that the entire time I was drunk. And then if you use that as an experience, or excuse to use, then how come I couldn't get out of it when I got sober? Because that would mean I'd made a mistake. And doctors don't make mistakes. So it wouldn't fit with my image of myself. Okay, in 10 to 12, these are slip prevention. Talk about resentments. I'm going to go through these pretty quick. Resting on your laurels. Resting on your laurels. Everybody knows what that means. I want to suggest one thing. Those of you that sponsor folks and those of you that work with people with our disease. The slip starts six months before the action. It appears in some way. You've all seen it. You all know it. You know when somebody's in trouble. We see it happening. But when and how to intervene are the questions. When to do something. How to do something. When do you approach them. You can see it in all kinds of ways in behavior and stuff. The question is, who needs to do it and how to do it? Trust, when developed in this program of ours, seems to be lasting. Think about people that have had a significant effect on your recovery, whom you trusted. And when you get in trouble, do you not think back to that relationship and that person? The person that has the best trust level involved with the guy in trouble ought to be the one to do the intervention. Now, when to help, sometimes it's difficult, but if you can get that relationship going, you can get it started. This is a point I want to make, and, and we all know this and we continually to do it, and there are people in this room that are suffering from this. If I let the rewards get ahead of the performance... I'm going to sabotage the recovery. Now, what's that mean? If I let the rewards get ahead of the work. There was a guy in our group, nice guy, knew how to handle money. We gave him ours, let him be the treasurer. He did good. He was dying to get his first year chip. He was on fire to get that one year chip. He was obsessed with getting that one year chip. We said, yeah, okay, good. You know, keep doing what you're doing. The night came, he got his chip. Four days later, he called from the Holiday Inn and had been drunk for four days. If you let the rewards get ahead of the work, you're going to sabotage the recovery. How often do we do that to each other? How often do we do it professionals in our field? How often do we do it to our friends and our colleagues? You know? We reward them because... we think they've gotten to a point where we are and they haven't done the work... And if you don't do the work and you start resting on your laurels, it won't be long until you find yourself resting somewhere else. AA is not a subterranean hiding place for alcoholics to get help and then go fight again. Let's see if I can go back here. Maybe not. The real purpose of that... The real design is to restore me to my rightful place in society. Bill W. in a meeting before he passed away. AA is not a subterranean hiding place for alcoholics to get help and then go back to fight again. It's not where I go to get what I need. 
and then go back to fight again. If I do that, it's going to get old, it's going to get boring, and I'm going to get gone. All right. Spiritual program is a real thing. It's not different. And what I wanted to touch on this real quick was spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. It is not an, if, it, if it is not an absolute force in all that I do, if it doesn't drive and guide everything I do and isn't involved in all I do, then it probably doesn't exist. Not a separate entity. It's part of the whole thing. It's a power. You have to get firmly connected to the power to be able to do the things that you need to do. Gotcha. Okay, now, this real quick. AA is the most important thing in my life. How many of us tell people AA has to be the most important thing in your life? Do it all the time. I do it all the time. Suggestion is this. The intent is true, the fact is not. If I am working the program right and practicing the principles in all my affairs, then AA does not compete with anything in my life. So it's not most important. It permeates my life. It's part of me. To suggest to my wife that AA is more important than her negates a relationship and her as a personality. Anytime you hold up that banner that it's sacred, you're in trouble. AA should be making me a better employer, better supervisor, better citizen, better husband, better father, better family member. It permeates all I do. It's not in competition with what I do. So the intent is true, but the fact is different. You don't set it up to compete with everything else. It becomes part of you and you become part of everything else. That doesn't happen. I better take a look at what is going on because these principles are important and they are what put integrity in each of my relationships. Okay? Now, we're in Nirvana now. A little late, took a little longer to get here than I intended, but we're here. Peaceful sky. We're in heaven. We've got all this stuff. We've done the amends. We've done the thing. We know about recovery. We decided we want to do more than drink. We can walk down the street. We can look people in the eye. Relationships are back. The honey's back. The job's back. White coat's back. A little tarnished, but it's back. we got jobs. we got respect. What is it that we do now? What are the 12 ways that we screw up our recovery? Expectations. Expectations. If I want to make an amend and I expect somebody to respond in a certain way, I'm in trouble. If I kiss my wife and expect a kiss in return, that's an expectation. That doesn't say, I love you. That says, I want you to notice and love me. Expectations get us in trouble all the time. If you can tell someone, I love you, and walk away without waiting for the answer, without an expectation, that relationship is totally different. My friend Jerry Groper says, change the toilet paper roll when it's empty and don't expect to be thanked for it. Makes sense to me. In our house, we have this game called the dishwasher. If the dishwasher is clean and you open the door and you hear the little flap goes down, that means you take the dishes out of the dishwasher and put them away. The understanding is whoever gets the flap gets the wrap, you know. If it goes down, you put the dishes away. And i got to tell you, I have tried to figure out a way to restore that flap and close the door. <laughs> So I don't get caught. Okay? Change the toilet paper and don't expect to be thanked. Get rid of the expectation. Old ideas. Best hamburgers in town are at the pub and the sports bar. Old idea. Old ideas about old things. You can only hear jazz in a smoke-filled room. Old idea. 
My sponsor, the one that's got 50-some years, told me rather crassly one day, Terry, you don't go to a whorehouse to hold hands. You don't go to a bar to get a hamburger. It's an old idea. You can hear jazz in a concert hall. It's probably better. Old ideas. Limited or unclear commitments. If I tell you that my home group is in Warrior, Alabama, and they meet on Monday night at 7.30, and I'm going to be there, that's a commitment to my home group. That means if somebody comes to Warrior, which is not real likely because there's not a whole lot of things going on, but if they would happen to find Warrior, Alabama, and would say, where's Terry A., they ought to be able to look at their watch and say, at 7.30, he's over at the community center downtown, and I'll be there. That's the commitment. That's a commitment to give back to what I've done. Commitments are unclear commitments. Unclear commitments to loved ones. Dishonesty. Eat you up every time. If I start lying, my program's in trouble. If I try to figure out how to put the flat back on the dishwasher and say I didn't know that was none when it was none, that's dishonesty. I'm starting in a place I don't need to be. Not practicing the principles. That's obvious. Resentment. Resentment is a thorn in your side turned inward that gets infected. It gives people rent-free in your head as long as you want to live them. Let them live there. Resentment always get us in trouble. Feeling beleaguered. Carrying the world on your shoulders. Having everything to do. You ever go to a place where there's a doorman and it's all he can do to open the door for you? He's flying around doing 8,000 times, totally life spinning out of control. Feeling beleaguered. I used to live like that. Overcommitted. Lacking the ability to say no. Lacking the ability to take care of yourself. Activity versus action. What I'm talking about here, activity and action are two different things. One's just being busy, 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 and the other one's getting something accomplished. We sometimes run around so fast we don't even know if we're coming or going. We versus me. I fight this on a daily basis. I'll, I'll do my little reading and I'll get in the car and I only live a few miles from work. By the time I get a few miles down the road, I've got a book written and a story going about something that somebody did that they don't even know they did. And somehow it's about me, 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 and they don't even know me exists. I, Burns, who's uh, going to talk tomorrow, explained it well to me one day. He said, I hate going to meetings when I'm not the speaker because it's not about me. <laughs> And don't raise your hands, but I'm sure there's one or two of you that have been to a meeting where they have a picture of Bill and Bob, and you see your own picture kind of like floating up between them. Some <laughs> Carrying the world on my shoulders. That's what physicians and dentists and docs do for a living. Carrying the world on my shoulders. It's all about me. I can fix it. Using people. Letting people buy me things because they got more money than I do. Using people. We do that well. And I'm going a little fast. Criticism and gossip, nothing more destructive in AA. I would suggest to you, if you hear in a conversation that somebody's criticizing or gossiping somebody else, say thank you, walk away. Nothing ever good comes out of that, and yet we all participate in it. How is so-and-so doing? We should say, if someone says, how is Terry really doing? We should say, I don't know, why don't you ask him? Diffuses the whole thing. Gets you out of the deal, stops the rumor, stops the criticism, stops the gossip. Negative thinking. They don't do it right. We got people from all over the country here, and I'll bet you I can find somebody in every AA meeting that says we don't do it that way in our home group. They don't do it right, whoever they are. Self-pity, depending on other people instead of the higher power. 
erratic or no step work, worry, eat you up, eat your lunch every time. There's somebody in this room that's worried about something today that's going to destroy their program. Can't afford it. Lack of focus, discouragement, change of mind. It's all it takes. All it takes is a change of mind to lose nirvana. All we have to do is change our mind about some simple little thing. Fear. Stinking thinking. Money, property, or prestige. Too much or too little. Big problem for us. We don't do things well. Again, all of this is on the handout if you need it. I would suggest you read a book called The Glumlot Letters by Stanley M. If you ever read Scarlet Letters, this is the alcoholic version of a devil's talking about another devil on how to keep us from getting well. It's very entertaining. It's very insightful. Alcoholics Anonymous. You know that book that we carry around? It's probably not a bad idea to read that. If you sponsor people, I suggest you read Chapter 7 if you sponsor folks. 12-step program for medical professionals, Michael Kaufman. There's his... uh, uh, email address in the web page. Those are the 12 steps for physicians that we referred to in there. He has a 12 step to recover from the ones that we just went over. I just didn't go into that. And these are some people that taught me how to live better than I ever knew how to live in my in my life. Pat R. used to call my office and tell my, my office manager he was Jesus. She got scared and would put him right through and I'd say, yeah, he calls all the time. She quit. <laughs> Okay, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to take the chance, if you're willing to put your hands and life in someone else's hands, if you're willing to do the things necessary to be safe and live a normal life, if you are willing to do more than just stop drinking, you will know a new freedom. Thank you.